Our reading today is from Romans chapter 4, and we're going to be reading from verse 9. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised, or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised, or before? It was not after, but before. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith, while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe, but have not been circumcised, in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promises, the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing and the promise is worthless because the law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Against all hope, Abraham, in hope, believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promises of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Amen. This is the word of God. Now, my grandfather, Fred Fuller, was, uh, was quite a character, I think is the sort of euphemistic term for him. Um, in the First World War, he was one of the 20 minuters. You know, those, he was an airline pilot. He flew a Sopwith Camel, age 16, uh, in the First World War, so was one of those with a life expectancy of 20 minutes. That was all that they gave the new pilots in the sky, but um, I'm living proof that he did survive uh, a little bit longer than that. And after the war, he was a successful businessman, quite a wealthy man in his day, but he was a deeply unpleasant man. <laughs> uh, he liked toying with people. And uh, if you ever watched Succession, he's a bit of a Logan Roy. He had six children and um, was pretty mean to all of them. So um, he liked toying with people. So when my father got engaged to my mum, uh, he said, oh, this house, this, look, this farmhouse here with the land, it's yours. You know, he had many, loads of property, my grandfather. This, this, I'm just, this is my wedding present to you, a house. Wow, thank you very much. Uh, yeah, yeah, just one or two things need doing and then I'll... As the wedding day got a little bit closer, down to a few months, Dad, can I get the keys to the house? I'd like to go in and paint it before we... Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. 
Yeah, Dad, can I get the keys to the house? Yeah, I'm just one or two things to sort out. And then, yeah, yeah, of course, no problem. It got down to three weeks before the wedding day. Dad, can I have the keys to the house so I can get in and, and paint it? Oh, I sold that house. Right. But that was your present. Yeah, sorry. So we've got nowhere to live now when we get married. Well, sort yourself out then, son. Okay. Fairly typical. Many of the time he'd say to me, I'd see him and say, well, your birthday next month, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got something very special for you. Thanks, Randad. And then it would come to my birthday and he'd dig in his pockets. Here's a boiled sweet. Great. Thanks. He was actually just very cruel, very unpleasant. Uh, and it sort of had an impact upon my father in that uh, he, my dad, truth and keeping your promise became incredibly important to my father. I mean, to the point it became a bit annoying. Dad, are you coming to watch me play football tomorrow? Probably. Can I borrow the car on um, Saturday? We'll see. He just never, and he just was never willing to commit <laughs> to something because he just would never want to break his word because he'd just grown up with it relentlessly, relentlessly, always his dad just letting him down, never following through. So uh, I think, you know, occasions he sat me down before going off to university. Okay, uh, son, here's, what, here's the deal. I give you, I will pay your rent and I'll give you this as an allowance. That's it. No more, but I guarantee you those. Okay, thank you very much. Um, now, there are times I think I probably tested his patience on those things. At the end of my first year where I just about scraped through to my second year and um, this became apparent and, you know, the conversation was had, well, you don't really deserve me to, get, to give you this allowance, do you, son? No, but I've promised, so you'll get it. Do better next year, please, would be entirely appropriate. Or when he dropped me off, I think it was the beginning of my third year. And, uh, okay, this is where you're staying, is it? So there's four of us staying in a house. Uh, we'd been a bit disorganized, so that by the time we got round to renting somewhere, it was without central heating, it was without any heating, actually. Didn't have a single heater at all. He came in, dropped me off, looked round. This is what I'm paying for, is it? Get on with it, you idiot. And um, he always kept his word. Because knowing the person who makes the promise makes all the difference in the world. My grandfather promised all sorts of things. Absolutely worthless. My father, when he said, I'll do this, guaranteed. But he didn't throw his words around lightly. So wonderfully, as I went off to university, my income depends not upon me, but upon the promise of my father. And that's really what this passage is about. It's a bit complicated when it's read, isn't it? But verse 16 is pretty much the passage in one single verse, I think. The promise of forgiveness and salvation comes by faith in the work of Jesus Christ so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed. That, that's really all you need to know about Romans 4, this bit of it. Your salvation, God promises it if you trust in Jesus. And therefore, it is absolutely guaranteed, certain, unbreakable. Can't lose it. 
if you trust his promise. The promise of acceptance by God, entrance to heaven, it relies not upon anything you do, but 100% on him. And his promises are trustworthy. That's our passage today. Now, if you're joining us just today, we've been looking at Romans 1 to 4 really all through this term. And uh, we'll pause today and we'll pick it up uh, just before, around Easter time, actually, I think, uh, next term. But a letter then that uh, Paul wrote to unite these two ethnic groups in the church in Rome, the, the Jewish gang and the non-Jewish, the Gentile gang, to unite them together behind his work of uh, taking the gospel message of Jesus Christ to Western Europe, to Spain. He wants them to come together and back him in that. Now, the key idea of this chapters 1 to 4 is that we all need righteousness, this legal language of the courtroom. None of us naturally are righteous. All of us are naturally under condemnation. We lack the right standing before the Lord, but it's a gift this righteousness, a gift that God gives to us, available through Jesus Christ. Upon the cross, he takes our condemnation. We get his perfection, his righteousness. That's what we got to in 1 to 4. And chapter 4 is really pushing it a little bit further and showing that the whole Bible has the same message. And if you were with us last time, he started to look at Abraham, this sort of big hitter from the Old Testament, for the Jewish uh, population of the church in Rome and said it was always this way. This was always how it worked. So Abraham is an example of faith in God's promises. not going to spend long on verses 9 to 12 because verse 9, is this blessedness, that of being forgiven, only for the circumcised or also the uncircumcised? That's not a question that many of us here are asking this morning. No one came in this morning saying, can I be forgiven if I'm uncircumcised? Um, remember, in Paul's language, that just means Jew or Gentile. Forget the physicality of it, almost. Jew or Gentile is his point. Is forgiveness only for the Jew or also for the Gentile? But he says the issue is the same, really. On what basis are you put right with God? Is it what you do, in this case here, in these little verses, being circumcised? Does that put you in God's people? No, he says, that wasn't true for Abraham. It's not true for any. The point is, verse 11, that Abraham is the father of everyone who has faith, everyone who believes. That's his point in those verses. That's how you get righteousness, by faith in the promises of God. It's, it's, you get it credited to you, it's bank account language. If you trust what Jesus has done, all of a sudden in your moral bank account, you get his worth. Gazillions of moral pounds, if you will. Righteousness. It just gets credited to you if you trust. But I want to try, it's a complicated little passage, but I want to summarize it in just these two sentences, really. First is this, that the promises are received through faith in God, not the law. And then secondly, we'll get to promises may appear hopeless, but God can raise the dead. Trust his promise. That's the point. And your salvation is guaranteed. First said, promises that are received through faith in God, not the law. Verses 13, 17. Verse 13 is the headline. It was not through the law 
that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. Two simple ways, two ways you can inherit. I mean, it's quite a promise, isn't it? To inherit the world, that remains the promise for Christians. God will, Jesus will return and recreate this world. Call it paradise, call it the new creation. But the promise to any Christian is you inherit that with him. Well, two ways you think that might happen. Either you think it's down to you, or you absolutely just trust God's promise. It's the same thing as I said earlier. My dad promised, I will pay your rent, I will give you an allowance. Now, the sensible thing to do is to trust that. I guess I could have said, well, I don't know. Maybe he won't come through. Maybe I need to persuade him by saying, look, Dad, I'm working much harder now. Look, see, see my latest essay result. History, degree. Um, uh, See, I've I've got a part-time job working in a bar. See, I'm contributing. But in the end, that's down to you. That's down to me, my labors. The point here is that you just trust the promise. It'll arrive. It'll get paid. And so verse 13, it was not through law-keeping that Abraham and his offspring received the promise, but by trusting it. Verse 14 clarifies, uh, for though if... Those who depend upon the law are heirs. That is, if you think it's what you do, gives you an inheritance. Faith means nothing. And the promise is worthless. It's it's binary. You either trust what God says, or you think, I I can't trust him. I've got to do it myself. Well, if you go down that latter route, verse 15, well, law doing it yourself, that just brings God's judgment upon you because you can't do it. And where there's no law, there's no transgression. I mean, what does that mean? His point being, where where there's a law, it makes it very obvious. If you're driving through a 30-mile-an-hour built-up area and you know your highway code, uh, you're driving through a little village and uh, you know it's a built-up area, it's 30 miles an hour, you should think to yourself, I should not be doing 50 miles an hour in this zone, okay? It's a built-up area. I should not be doing 50 miles an hour. You know that. You do know that if you're vaguely competent. Now, if, however, there are signs up everywhere, 30 miles an hour, one of those dot matrix faces that sort of lights up red and goes with a big frown on it and flashes up your speed, 50 miles an hour, then there is law telling you to in your face that um, you're doing wrong. But you should have known it anyway. That's his point. Um, stop. You should know. You should know. But when God has given you your law, you should know. You can never be right with him by what you do. By persuading him through the labors of your hands. You just trust his promise. And verse 16 is the payoff. The promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed. You trust, you have faith. Therefore, it's of grace. It's all God, not you. And because it's all God, 
guaranteed. It just, that is a wonderful word, isn't it? Guaranteed. Not many things are guaranteed. Christmas. We should be okay to have a normal Christmas. Probably. Maybe. And, you know, a week ago, yeah, yeah, yeah. And from yesterday, well, probably. It's not guaranteed. It depends how well the British public behaves and um, whether you visit Brentwood in Essex or whether Nottingham and um, whether you visit these places. And uh, Probably, but it's not guaranteed. Very few things are guaranteed. I was meant to do a, what, a 10K run next week. Well, I might be all right, but my Achilles is a bit... So it probably won't. But I might be, but not many things are guaranteed. Salvation. Will I make it to heaven? Well, I don't know. Some days I'm good. Some day... It is guaranteed. Because there are no circumstances that will change God's promise. And there's no flaw in you, physical, moral, that will change his promise. It is guaranteed. Because it's a gift of his grace. And the one who promises is absolutely trustworthy. Guaranteed is a very wonderful word. To be righteous by faith, it doesn't just mean forgiven. It doesn't just mean morally neutral. It means positively God views you like his son. The Christian is not on probation. You start a new job, even if you, you know, everything's good and your contract is great and you like new colleagues, etc. Every, everything is, looks good about this new job you start. Most jobs will put you on a three-month probationary period. So for three months, it's, this is probably going to be all right, but I can't be 100% certain. And, you know, maybe you're on a year's probation. Who but um, it's very different if you're guaranteed. The Christian is not on probation. It's probably okay, but we'll just wait and see how I perform. We're not on probation. It is if, to really stretch an analogy, you know, the HR department looks upon you, no matter how much you screw up, all they can see is a 100% 50-year perfect service record because the Christian has the record of Christ. We're not on probation. Our future is guaranteed because of him, trusting in him. So promises are received through faith in God, not our endeavours, not our law-keeping. It means they're guaranteed. Not many things are. And then secondly, promises, they may appear hopeless, but look, God can raise the dead, which is extraordinary. They may appear hopeless, but God can raise the dead. There's fabulous honesty here because um, sometimes the promises God makes, they seem unlikely but you just need to remember who's making them. So in this, Abraham's an example. Verse 17, uh, halfway through. He is the, our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. That's who Abraham trusted. The God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. 
So let's give a bit more detail on that. Verse 18. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Now, some will remember this, some won't know. Genesis 15 in particular, God says to Abraham, when uh, in Genesis 15, he's, he's roughly 80 years old and his wife Sarah roughly 70 years old. Genesis 15, okay, your descendants are going to be like the stars of the sky. We looked at this last week or, or, or like the sand on the shore. You're going to have thousands and thousands of descendants. And time goes, and Abraham thinks, well, it's unlikely, but God can do what he wants. But time rolls on. So particularly you get just a couple of chapters later, Genesis 17, but 20 years later, God says again to Abraham, oh, look, your descendants are going to be like the stars in the sky and, and the sand on the shore. Now, you can quite easily imagine, and I don't want to be irreverent here, but you can imagine Abraham saying, okay, Lord, you said that 20 years ago when I was 80 and Sarah was 70. I'm now 100 years old. She's now 90 years old. Are you being cruel to us? Do you think we're idiots? We've just 20 years ago, you said, unlikely though it is, for an 80-year-old and a 70-year-old. 20 years later, still no child, God. Uh, I mean, ha, 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 ha. Is that what's going on here? Are you toying with us, Lord? No. Yeah, it would be very tempting for Abraham to say that, I think. But in the language here, he trusted the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. So as Paul says, his body was as good as dead. <laughs> Sarah's womb was pretty much dead. Abraham trusted, but of course God comes through on his promise. So verse 20. This, if you've read the story, you might think this is a bit of, bit of bit, bit generous towards Abraham, because Abraham does wobble in his life. He does sort of do one or two dodgy things. But I think Paul is summarizing, look, if you take Abraham's life as a whole, not the worst moments or indeed the best moments, if you take his life over as a whole, he trusted, verse 20, yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he promised. And that's why it was credited to him as righteousness. What do you do when you're struggling to believe the promises of God? Is there really a heaven? Is there heaven for me? you look at the fact that this is a God who can give life to the dead. Did it throughout history, example in the life of Abraham and Sarah, did it supremely in the Lord Jesus Christ, who he raised from the dead? Is there a heaven? Is there a heaven for me? Yes. Look at this God and look at how he raises people from the dead. 
you can trust his promise. Even though at times it seems very unlikely, you can trust him. And so, uh, conclusion comes that this promise is for us. Verses 23 to 25. Uh, the words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, whom God will credit righteousness. For us, who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Do you see the, the parallel that is drawn here? Abraham said, or Ab God makes a promise to Abraham, you have lots of children, and Abraham says, I trust you, Lord. And that's credited to him. Righteousness is given to him. The Christian receives a promise. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He'll pay for everything you've done wrong. He'll guarantee you a place in heaven. And the Christian says, I trust you, Lord. And that's credited. Righteousness to your moral bank account. And so this example is written for us. And it's more deeply guaranteed than it was for Abraham because we see Jesus raised for our justification to demonstrate it's all worked. It's all true. Atonement is made. So this guarantee, it's for you, it's for me. We're trusting in Christ. So to draw back before concluding, the, the whole of chapter 4, if you've been with us, it's been pressing just one thing upon us, really. Look at what God has done. Look at the promises he makes. Trust him, not yourself. Last week, if you trust yourself, you just, be, you just boast. Look at me. I'm a great Christian. This week, if you trust yourself, you can't guarantee heaven. But if you look at him, you won't boast last week. If you look at him, your future is guaranteed because it's about him. God is a wonderful promise maker. Not like my grandfather toying with us, making promises where they come true. Uh, let's see what I can do. Let's manipulate the pieces on the board. A little bit more like my father. Promises. Doesn't make many, but what he does follows through. God is the one who gives life to the dead. He's done so in Jesus. He'll do so for you and for me. And as you know, a number here would know, what if he, my father was deeply hostile to uh, the Christian message for, for 80 years of his life, wouldn't, wouldn't engage, would get up from the dinner table and walk away if I tried to speak to him about it. But in the last couple of years of his life, was, was willing to listen, maybe because of the witness of my mum. And in the last month of his life, when I was reading the Bible with him and we read, read one description of heaven, that he said, well, that just sounds wonderful. Well, Dad, do you want to go there? Yes, I do. Do you think you will? I hope so. Well, how do you think you'll go to heaven, Dad? I hope Jesus will take me. Well, that's guaranteed. Because it's not about you. It's about him. About the promises he makes. Not many things in this life are guaranteed. But because it doesn't rest upon us, 
because it doesn't rest upon circumstances but upon the Lord, righteousness, right standing, a place in heaven, that depends upon this God. And therefore it's guaranteed. That he'd love you. He wants us to enjoy that, to celebrate that. Not look at ourselves, but look at him. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, guarantee is a wonderful word. On our stuff, we get a new device, a new oven, and it's guaranteed for 10 years. That's great. A new car, and it's guaranteed for 10 years with no cost. It's great. Uh, A house we buy new, and it's guaranteed that anything wrong with it gets fixed for 10 years. That's amazing. A guarantee gives us security, gives us protection. The guarantee that heaven is ours, that righteousness is ours. Therefore, eternity in the new creation is ours. That matters. So, Father, would we not look to the labors of our own hands, but simply to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and trust the promise of salvation in him. We ask for his glory. Amen.